0: So I want to pick up in Psalm 22. For this summer, we've been running through the psalms. We've been reflecting on them. My prayer is that this becomes the song of the summer for us. Uh, I want to put this as a big deal for us. Like when you think back to the summer of 2017, I don't want you to be humming some song from Justin Bieber. I want you to be reflecting on and meditating on this powerful thing that god gives us in the psalms that shape us this is the kinds of thing my hope is this like gets stuck in your head like that like that tune right you you wake up in the morning and and you're reflecting and thinking in the same terms that we've thought for the last couple of weeks that like like the third or the fourth psalm you will say my rest my refuge is in god alone my my love is for his word and for his protection he is my shield and we're willing to cry out to god because we've seen over the course of our time in the psalms this is oh excuse me i'm skipping ahead that our hope and our comfort is in who God is and what God has done. And when we find our comfort in God, like the Psalms lead us to do, we worship, we praise God through a variety of means. The so Psalms gives us ways to praise God by asking Him for help. It's, it's actually praise to God to complain to Him. It's, it's not praise to God to, to look for satisfaction apart from God. But it's praise to God to say, God, I'm hurting, I don't like this, help me. That's actually praise. And so we're invited to do that in Psalm 22. And I want to invite you, same as we did through the the course of our time in Ecclesiastes, I want to invite you into what I would say is maybe a temporary sorrow. I want to invite you into like a melancholy place so that we will find the kind of joy that comes from finding our comfort and our hope in God alone. So beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 22, we'll read the entirety of the psalm today. We'll spend our time in the first two-thirds of the psalm, and then we'll kind of look over the second, the second and third third of the psalm next week. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it my prayer is that this becomes more than ink on a page and it becomes the actual words of God for the people of God after Jesus was resurrected and appeared bodily to his followers and into crowds Luke chapter 24 tells us that he appeared to a couple of people but apparently in his resurrected body he was unrecognizable to a couple of his followers, and they were in a, in a very sad and desperate way walking away from Jerusalem and on their way to Emmaus, a, a city that's about a, a day's worth, I guess probably depending on the topography or the path, uh, about a day's journey away. And we find Jesus walking along, and something amazing happens before he reveals himself to, to them, and Because after all, they watched him die. They had no reason to think that he was alive. But then they were sad, and he kind of played along and said, like, why are you so sad? And they said, have you heard? Like, are you the only one who hasn't heard about this Jesus? Who at one point, he was starting a movement, but then the movement turned on him and betrayed him, and then they killed him. You're not aware of these things? And Jesus confronts them, and he says something powerful to them. In Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 25, it says, And he said to them, Oh foolish ones. I love it when Jesus kind of steps aside from his sweet blonde-haired, you know, blue-eyed Barry Gibbs version of Jesus and becomes a real human, right? You fool. You're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets has spoken, right? That's gentle, right? Love this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, this is the most this is powerful, right? It says, and then, beginning with Moses, that would have been from Genesis and Exodus, beginning from the beginning of the Scripture, beginning with Moses, and then all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I shared with you when we were walking through the end of the book of Luke a couple of Easters ago, that there was one and I love, and I remember this pretty profoundly. He said, I would trade all the books in the world to have sat and overheard the conversation that's summarized in this verse. Jesus, from the beginning of the Bible, preaches the greatest sermon that's ever been written, right? It's like, and he just begins to expound the Old Testament and says, look, this is what happened, and this is why it happened. And these are the things that have happened according to the, the beginning of the story to the prophetic end of the story that have been fulfilled in himself. And I, and I echo that. I, 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 would give, I would give every book ever written to just simply be eavesdropping on that conversation, walking along and taking notes. If I could get a recording of that conversation, it would be amazing. But what I want you to see here is why we do what we do. And as Jesus models for us when we open the Old Testament, what it is that we're even looking for? What are we even after? What are we seeking for? And he models for us a powerful thing, beginning with Moses. So even if you were to open up the beginning, right, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, because we saw this a couple, last week and the week before, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Even we're looking at these, these theological origins to things, to, to God's people and how God delivers his people, begins to demonstrate a pattern that God reveals to us, Even when we're doing that, it isn't so that we'll just kind of like develop another lump in our own brain so that we'll have like some fun facts to dump out at the next cocktail party that you want to show yourself you know more about the Bible than the next person, right? That's not what we're doing. But we're looking for something. We're actually digging and hunting for something. We're looking in something old to see the remnant of something beautiful in Jesus. And Psalm 22 is one of the most powerful places where we find this. 15 different times this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. 15 different times. And the most powerful place where it's quoted, we'll get there toward the end of our time, especially next week, is in Matthew chapter 27. One of Jesus' last words from the cross experiencing what must have been the most awful abandonment imaginable. He cries out, he says verse 1, did you catch it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when I say I want the psalms to be the song of the summer for you, that you ruminate upon that like boils up in the moments you wake, I'm saying, even like Jesus, I want that to be I want these words to be so deeply rooted in you so that when you are in the most immense amount of suffering, when the worst possible things that could happen, you don't just simply resolve to kind of quote whatever you've been like ruminating on from our own culture, but you begin to, like Jesus, quote the Bible. You cry out the words of God back to God. What I think you find here is pretty powerful. Remember we saw our hope and our rest is in God, but we see something paired up in these these 31 verses we see suffering and glory side by side. So as you zoom out, just from what we just read, at the very beginning, it's like things couldn't be worse, right? God, help me. Stop ignoring me. Can you even hear? Are you even there? And then at the end, he's like, I can't wait to tell the nations about what you do. I can't wait to share to the nations how you don't abandon, you don't forsake, you don't forget, but you save. And you see like two powerful things side by side, the experience of suffering and the experience of glory. And one actually begins to lead to the other. This points us to, I think, what Christ was likely crying out and praying for to God on the cross because we see both the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. It's all right here. All right here. Now hopefully as we were reading through this, maybe if you have some background in reading the Bible, you've read parts of the Gospels before, the account of what happened in Jesus' crucifixion almost Word for word in some of these particular places, or places like like is quoted. Did you catch that? There's little places, and in fact, Matthew and Luke go out of their way to make sure they say, "By the way, this is why Jesus did and said what he did and said." He was calling back to something that God had done in the past. So he begins by saying, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" So there seems to be three sections. There's like these. There's three different sections of this particular text, like the, the first 10 verses, kind of the second 10 verses, and, or 10 to 12 verses, and then the last uh, 8 to 11 verses. Depending on how you want to parse it out, there's possibly some different places that are turning points. But basically, it starts with a cry out of hopelessness. He finds hopelessness in his own history, the history of his people. And he has a hopelessness that seems to, to even like call back to his own birth. But then there's this middle section, there's a prayer, a moment where he begins to call out to God, beginning in verse 11, be not far from me. And this prayer lasts about 10 verses until finally the last section, the last third of this chapter is like this glory, a testimony, of what he will do to tell people of how he's going to worship God and lead others to worship him. I want to spend our time this morning, on those first two, sex, two, first two sections. The first is this reflection upon his own abandonment. And we need every step. Think, like the psalm contains a striking and astonishing number of parallels to the events in Jesus' crucif- his crucifixion. At least six, possibly more. But six in this first little bit. This first, a crying of abandonment. right? Almost word for word, Jesus cries out, "Eloi, or Eli depending on whether you're talking to Matthew or Mark. He may have done it in Aramaic or may have done it in the original Hebrew, but either way, he's crying and quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But secondly, there's this despising and this mocking. And there's this taunt. Did you catch it here? There was a, a taunt from people in verse 7, 8. It says, those who see me, they mock me and they, they, like, they wag their heads like they shake their They think that he's silly and they make fun of the fact that he's calling out to God. And that exists almost identically in in the case of Jesus, right? You hear the mocking of 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 the thief beside him. Call out to God. See if he'll take you down from this. See if he'll save you. There's a mocking for their trust. The third thing you see is there's like this, as death gets closer, right? As the experience of getting closer and closer to death, there's this like, this experience that he that says he's being poured out like water, and it says all of his bones are either out of joint or become visible. It says his heart is melted like wax, and his strength is completely dissipated. Fourthly, you see a parallel of the Gospels from Psalm 22, that he's surrounded by wicked onlookers. The Gospel writers make sure we wanted, that we would remember, we, would, we, we want to know this, that the people around Jesus, even the people who were like supposed to be his friends, kind of deny him and abandon him. And then you see this picture of this piercing of the hands and feet, a mauling, a, an injury that, that goes through the skin and the hands and the feet. And then lastly, there's a division of his garments by lot. They just kind of throw it up and say, Who, whoever wins this little lottery wins Jesus' garments. So I want you to see the echoes here. I want you to see what's going on. So I just want to walk through some of these verses, and then I want to kind of make some observation of where we're, we're really called to reflect on this, where we're really called to pray this. So I think you'll find yourself in one of a few places as we do this. You'll either find yourself deeply resonating with these words because you know what this feels like. A feeling when you you pray and you wonder if there is a God to even hear or respond. Those words are here. But maybe you're on the other side and you find yourself, maybe you're just deeply unsympathetic and when you encounter people who are suffering or have gone through hardship, you find yourself telling them they ought to do something. They ought to look to themselves and make better decisions because they brought the suffering on themselves. And this psalm deals a powerful critique to two opposite ends of the spectrum with respect to suffering. So let's begin to walk through. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far... From saving me. From the words of my groaning. So not only is God far from saving, he's even far from even listening or hearing the words of his groaning. He cries out, My God, I cry in the day, you don't answer. I cry in the night, and there's no rest. Been there? He says, but you are holy. Makes this transition. He calls out, like God's not listening, but in the midst of this sense of, of abandonment, he turns to God. Getting ahead of myself. I don't know how I bumped that. Sorry. It's not helpful. So we find out Jesus cries out to the one that he no longer even senses. Notice what an amazing act of faith this is. What an amazing thing for him to, in that moment, wonder if God is listening, and yet he cries out wondering why God is doing what he's doing. Now, I shared this with you um, for the last couple of weeks. This is powerful for us as we, uh, for us, as we read through these songs of lament, In the Bible, there's there's kind of this prevailing notion, and I'll I'll get to this in just a few minutes as well. But like uh, my own personal experience of it, there's like this prevailing notion that if you like are mad at God, uh, he he just pouts and goes home and abandons you, right? Heard this? Like if you're like God, I don't like this. He's like fine, and he leaves, right? And there's this we we tend to project our own sense of complaint onto God. I shared with you with this last week. Um, Like we actually delight in God's words. We delight when they correct us. And that's fairly countercultural, because God is not like us. right? So I shared this last week. If you come up to me and you're like, "Hey, Jonathan, I don't like that decision you make uh, or that, the decision you made, I'm always shocked. Like I'm, I'm always shocked when I make a mistake. It always catches me off guard. I'm like, "I can't believe I did that." Or, or I defend myself because it can't possibly be. You're, can you, you relate to this? Like I, when someone says, "Hey, I don't like this thing about you or what you're doing." I'm always shocked. I'm like, how could you not like this? And here's the good news. God's not like you or me. When we look and go, God, I don't like this. Thank God he's not like me. He's not shocked at our disapproval. He sees things a lot more clearly. He has a a deeper and more eternal purpose that, that when you cry out to him, it doesn't offend him or hurt him. In fact, the offense to God here would be to cry out to someone else. I shared this with you like if I if my daughters come to me and they're like hey I want a pony and I'm like no um there's still an honor in them coming to me the dishonor would would be when they know I'm not going to give them a pony and they come ask you and they go hey would you give me a pony my dad won't give me a pony but would you And, and in a sense they'd be looking apart from their provision from their father and they'd be looking to you that's offensive and if you buy them a pony we got beef right you get this right want to be explicit. The same thing is true here. When we cry out to God for what we want, even if we don't get what we want, he's still a loving and caring father. The offense comes when we choose to go elsewhere and find our comfort, find our satisfaction, find our sense of identity apart from God's provision. So this is a perfect model for us. We cry out to God. It's not that we cry out to God that's wrong. It's when we cry out to other things other than God. You look to your own satisfaction. You look to your achievement. You look to your own sense of approval. You look to your own power, control. You look to your own, your own means to get comfort, and you look apart from God to do this. And so even, this is a, even though this is a cry of dereliction, a cry of abandonment, notice it is a cry to God. A cry to God that even this moment, for Jesus and for David, who probably is the, the author of this psalm, a cry out to God he didn't even really feel the presence of. Just hang on that for just a moment. Most of the time, we, we don't really have faith in God. The object of our faith is not God. Our faith is in our faith in God. Let me break that down. Like Our object, the object of our faith, the thing that we trust in and believe in, is not God, but it is our experience of God. And our faith is not in God and his identity, his character. Our faith is in our experience of him. So, so, like, for instance, our faith is in our faith whenever we're trying to recapture an experience of God's provision from the past. Ever been there? Right? Like, if right now, this is, this is not going to hit everyone, but, like, this is something that people who call themselves Christians do a lot, like, but if right now you're really hoping to recapture a sense of, like, youth camp you had back in the day, beware, your faith is not in God, your faith is in your experience of God. And you can't wait to relive that moment when you felt like God was present. But notice what's modeled for us here. The object of our faith is not our experience of his presence. The object of our faith is the unchangeable nature and character of God. That's a big deal. Because sometimes, for those of you who've left youth camp, you know what I'm talking about, sometimes it doesn't feel that good. Sometimes life is difficult. And sometimes the presence of God seems like the most difficult thing to believe. And we'll cry like, how can there be a God? How could could there possibly be a God given this? How could there be a good and faithful father given my experience? Been there? The good news is that he's not offended by that. He welcomes that. God is bigger than your doubts and questions. He can handle your criticism. He doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeve like I would. Instead, He is unchangeable, and his character as a loving father is unshakable even if you don't like him. And our trust then is in him. We look to him. So when our faith is in him, we find out he looks back to and finds provision or, or hope in the provision of God beginning in verse 3. He says, Yet you are holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. And he calls back something. You said, like, my fathers used to trust, they trusted, they delivered, and he, and he looks back. Look at what God has done. Remember what I told you? Our hope and our comfort is in who God is and what he's done. So that even in the moments where we can't really experience or feel the presence of God, we feel abandoned by God. And we're like, God, why have you forsaken me? We're meant to stop and look back at who God is and what he's done. For us, it's the cross. And those moments where we're like, I feel abandoned, we stop and we go, no, 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 that can't be true. God, love, God loved you, loved me, loved the world so much that he sent his son to take our place. We look back. Now, this is important because this is, remember, th- this is David probably writing this, right? These are probably the words of David. Now, you remember, if, if you don't, I'll, 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 I'll recall this for you. Like David's great-grandmother, do you remember her name? Her name was Ruth. And so when he starts to, when he starts to like call back God's faithfulness, I don't know what stories you remember about your grandparents or great grandparents, but probably none of them are as cool as like your great grandmother Ruth, right? A a, a woman who who had no right who had no like business being a part of the lineage of God's work in the world. And yet Ruth is what? It's a story about how a person who was powerless, boldly stepped in, and was like, look, if I die doing this, I die doing this, I'm going to do it. May, may God deal with me. May God do what he wants with me. God delivers, and he, he provides what, what's known as a kinsman redeemer, and a man by the name of Boaz restores the lineage so much so that now when you look in the lineages of Jesus, the big guy, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother is Ruth. And that's the great-grandmother of David. So when he stops and he's, he's like, man, I'm, I'm, I feel abandoned, but then he looks back. He's looking back on a lineage of God's deliverance. He's saying, man, God, you've brought me this far. Surely you won't leave me now. Surely you didn't deliver this person and this person. Surely you didn't carry these people and these. you didn't deliver us out of Egypt. You didn't deliver my family. Surely you didn't do any of these things just to abandon me now. Surely you didn't uh, deliver me through the hand of Saul, the, the king that tried to kill him, or his own son who wanted to kill him, and pretty much everyone else who wants to kill David in the story of David. Surely he wouldn't have delivered him through these things only to kill him now. Friend, we do the same thing. In our deepest, most profound despair, we look back to what God has done, and we say, look, look what God has accomplished. Look at what he's finished for us. And hopefully there's a group of people like the ones in this room that remind us with gospel truth. When we say, "No one could love me," There's someone like me or someone else who comes like, "Oh, friend, nothing, nothing. Heights, depths, your depression, nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ. Nothing." And you'll say, "Well, well, I'm a failure." There's no way God would love me. I must be his enemy. And someone like me or someone else comes along and goes, Oh, friend, hear the good news. While you were the enemy, your worst day, not your best day, your worst day, that was the day Jesus looked at you and said, That one's mine, I'm gonna take that one. We're those people. We we constantly call back to God's faithfulness in, in Christ. And we look to the cross and we look at the price that was paid on our behalf. But here's our response to this kind of begin this kind of reflection. What do I want you to do? What am I actually calling you to do, and what am I calling you to be? Here's what I want you to do. Be good mourners. Cry out with passion. I mean, these typos on this ProPresenter app. My fault. I apologize. Feel the burdens of a broken, fallen world. So you're like, well, what do I do? What do you want me to believe, and how do you want me to live this out? Mourn. It's a strange thing to ask of people. I want you to actually mourn. I want you to suffer alongside people. I want you to cry out with passion from your pain, and I want you to feel the burdens of a broken, fallen world. Why? Why would I do that? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. And there's a powerful thing going on in this psalm as we're invited to suffer and suffer well. You see, I was kind of raised, uh, I was raised around people who were Christians, and, and they just were always joyful. Uh, but if I would be, uh, I, w- I want to confess to you, I didn't understand it. I misunderstood their joy. Uh, mainly because I had misunderstood the gospel, but like, I, I didn't understand their joy. It just seemed like they were always happy. And I don't know if you, if, if you're a, you know, like a, maybe, maybe you're like me, you're, maybe you're a darker person, you're more cynical, more sarcastic, maybe that's, maybe that's you. Uh, those people are annoying. Like, I mean, I I I want like, where are you, God? And and when someone comes along, it's like he's right there, man. You just, you just you just missed it. Like, that person annoys me. I'm not ready to hear that in that moment. And so I misunderstood their joy. I, I mistook it for just like a shallow happiness. And I just assumed that Christians were the people who were never sad. And then something happened. I read the Bible. And I came to find out that it isn't that they're never sad. It's just that they're never without hope. It isn't that they never mourn. We find at the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to a group of people mourning the loss of people they loved, people who had probably been killed for their faith. And he says, he doesn't say stop crying. He says, cry, mourn, but do not mourn as those who have no hope. Mourn deeply. Feel the weight of sin. Feel the weight of failure. Feel the weight of life in a broken, fallen world. Feel that weight. But don't let it rob you of hope. Let it be the fertile place from which we find the gospel being fruitful. God will not save us from suffering. He will save us us through suffering. Hint, hint, the symbol for our movement is a cross, a method of torture, a method by which you would kill a person for as long a time as possible. That's, That's the symbol of our movement. And so when we experience suffering, we, we're able to commiserate with this. But, but here, here's where I want to land, and maybe this will be kind of the, the encouragement to us. Like, there's something going on here, and, and Psalm 22 presents two protective measures from two extremes. One, to find your identity in victory and in the avoidance of suffering. Or two, to find your identity in loss or to find your, ide- your, find your excuse me, avoidance of suffering and loss. Or two, finding your identity in suffering or in victimhood. Both of them are available for us today and both of them are highly exalted and they're polarized. And the gospel speaks a critique against both of them. So the first one, like this sense in which you're going to find your identity in the absence of suffering. And you do everything you can to win and to be the achiever. And when you lose, you begin to think God isn't even faithful. But this, there, there's a critique here. Psalm 22 critiques it It says to the person who idolizes power or success or winning or the person who seeks to find comfort from avoiding suffering, that's not real. That's not reality. You can't keep that up. And that's not how God works. That isn't how God works. The good news isn't that Jesus avoided death. He outsmarted or outran death. The good news is Jesus bore the marks of death on his body and walked out of the grave three days later so that our hope isn't that we will live forever. I love the words. Even the pre, just catch that towards the end of Psalm 22, even the person who couldn't stop from dying, right? This is you with all your, you know, with your crossfit and your your antioxidants and your, you know, your probiotics and your vaccines or not vaccines or whatever whatever you're doing to live longer and keep you from dying, right? Whatever that thing is will fail, but I have good news for you, Jesus will not. And the good news isn't that you will avoid death or outrun death or outsmart death or outwit death. The good news is that Romans 5 and 6 tells us we will experience death and Jesus one day will command us to get up and walk out. That's our hope. Our hope is in this. So we don't run from suffering, we see it for what it is, as a consequence of a fallen and broken and sinful world. So for you, maybe, maybe you just, you're just you all about winning. You're all about being in control. Be careful, friend. There's a time coming where the words of the psalmist in verse 1-2 of Psalm 22 will be your words. And I have encouragement for you. In that failure, you will feel like God has abandoned you. But you'll come to the realization that the God you were worshiping wasn't the God who was faithful throughout all generations. The God you were worshiping was your own reflection in the mirror. The God you were worshiping was your own achievement, your own sense of acceptance, your own control and power. And when that God dies, one theologian calls it, a very good atheism occurs. Believing in the God of self, as it dies, a healthy atheism occurs. You realize you're not God. And you begin to realize there is a God who is faithful. He is with us and for us in Jesus. And there's good news for you even when that thing fails. Now push on you if you're the kind of person who always finds identity in success and achievement. You probably always think that it's someone else's fault when they fail. When people are in oppression, like, like right now, when I say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Part of you is like, well, they did something and they had it coming. I want to be careful here. That's that's not what we're called to do. Jesus didn't avoid suffering. Jesus identified with those who are suffering so that he is our high priest, one who can sympathize with us in every single way. And friend, you're being an antichrist when you assume that when people are in suffering, they've done something wrong. Do me a favor. Don't talk. Just hug them. Just hug them. Maybe later you can explain to them the the essence of their experience and their mistakes and their sin that brought upon some of their suffering. But sometimes people are just sinned against. Sometimes people are victims. And it's important to see that because Jesus became one of, a, Jesus became one of them on your behalf. But here's the last one. The other extreme is to find your identity in victimhood. This one hurts. Uh, I encourage you to begin to do some research. Uh, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, uh, a sociologist, coined a phrase in 1989 called intersectionality. And it's this idea that people, uh, people groups that are oppressed have a different experience of reality. And if, the, if, you have more, if you're a part of more than one group that's been oppressed, there's an intersection of those groups. You're more than one of these oppressed groups. Then you, you have a radically different view of reality. It's helpful. But what happens, and this is what I see in our culture, is it creates what I would just call a perpetual state of offense. Like, we are in a perpetual state of outrage. Like, if you want to be mad about something, there are so many groups that want to encourage you to do so. And if you want to find your identity as a victim, and this is important because right now, that's, that's why the pendulum swings, right? We're like, every, only the people who win and are powerful get to speak. But right now, we're in a place where if you're, if you're oppressed, you get to speak. And there's this temptation to find your identity in that victimhood. But notice, that isn't where we find our hope. Verse 8, the, what, what is our hope? That you, that you remain a victim, you always have sympathy from people, they have that attention? No, their trust ultimately is in the Lord. While others might mock you for it, that's our hope. God is the one who delivers us. So there's this other critique that Psalm 22 gives us. For those of, the, for those of us who maybe venerate victory and winning and try to avoid suffering as our end goal in life, Psalm 22 critiques that and says that's not what you're here for. You're not here to avoid suffering. Jesus sets us the example. But on the other hand, you're not here to just simply be a victim. The psalmist identifies with you and then ultimately Jesus does. And if you see yourself as a perpetual victim, God doesn't see you that way. God doesn't see you that way. God doesn't look at you that way. God has allowed Jesus to take that victimhood from you. Not everyone who is elite is evil. There's not, a, I mean, here's, there's not a they. There's not a they out there who are doing that. You know what they are, and they're doing that thing to you. They don't exist. The more oppressed groups that you can identify yourself with right now, the more and the more voice you have. And it, here's the thing. It actually inadvertently incentivizes suffering. It incentivizes victimhood friend, read the end of the psalm. Our victimhood isn't our end identity. Our end identity is that we belong to God and his kingship. He rules over the nations. All those oppressors over us will have to answer to the king. And our hope is that vengeance belongs to him. Justice is in his hands. And so there's a critique of the two swings in our culture that exists right now, either to to exalt the winner or to exalt the loser. And We come to find out that Jesus does something more powerful. He identifies with the loser in order to demonstrate the victory found in God alone. So we are good mourners. We cry out with passion. We feel the burdens of a broken, fallen, and sinful world. When you do so, you're looking towards the grace of God. When you do so, you look like Jesus. Crying out to God is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of our confidence in where the strength really lies. So here's what I'm calling you to do, and here's what I'm calling you to be. Be mourners, be sufferers, be people who carry the burdens of others. Not that we find our identity in that, but that we would be the people who come along and have good news for those who have been sinned against, those who have been, abused those have been neglected we come along and we say our jesus has been neglected he knows what that's like but thank god that he has taken our place and done something for us he was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken he was abandoned in verse one here so that you and i would never be abandoned he's done something for us illustrated in verse one that we could never do for ourselves Jesus cries out, remember this, to the one he no longer even senses. In our worst moments, we can do no less. In our worst possible moments, I want to encourage you, there is a God who hears, there is a God who saves, and we find suffering and glory all piled into this one psalm. We find suffering and glory all piled into the story of Jesus. We find suffering and glory all in this good news this good news that is free to you and to me. There's a God who hears you. There's a God who responds. And his response is not anger or vengeance. His response is to send his one and only son to take that suffering for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. Uh, We thank you for all that you've done for us. And Jesus Christ... God, we confess to you that it is our temptation to find our identity and sense of purpose in any other place than in you, our creator. We'd like to find an explanation for the way things are apart from you. And the result is that we either find our identity in in what's been done to us or the sins that we've committed against others or we find our identity in, in our own achievement and victory. Would you begin to in the words of this psalm, invite us to cry out in abandonment, cry out to you knowing that you can save. You're not offended or hurt when we weep to you, but instead you're a good father who wraps his loving arms around his children who run to him. May we be a people who take seriously suffering. May we be a people who take seriously offense, and oppression, May we be a people who take seriously what it means to be a victim. Not because we want to find our identity in those things, but because our Jesus underwent all of those things to redeem us from that. Maybe if there's some in this room and maybe their, their MO is, is a pompousness or pride towards those who are in desperate situations, or maybe if we're on the other side and we're just we're just stuck in a fit of depression, would you begin to, in the words of this psalm, allow us to feel the depths of that hurt in ourselves or in others and then cry out to you and hear the words that are spoken, the blood of Jesus that cries out a better word, a better word of redemption and forgiveness. May we look to him. If there's some in this room that have never looked to him and trusted in him, would you begin to open their eyes and allow them to consider the possibility that you are who you say you are? You have delivered us and redeemed us. We thank you for calling us to yourself in suffering and even in prosperity. In Jesus' name, amen.